good morning. It's great to be with you um, this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to um, Mark chapter 15 this morning. This summer we have been um, looking at the Gospel of Mark and uh, trying to see if we can discover in the Gospel of Mark the real Jesus. And... um, we, we have two more um, weeks this morning, and then next, next week we will kind of wrap up our series in the Gospel of Mark. And um, so we're going to be looking at the, at the cross of Jesus this morning and the resurrection next week. So um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a, a blue church Bible near you, and uh, you can find Mark 15 um, on page 852 in one of those blue Bibles. Uh, if you would stand with me, let's uh, give our attention to God's word together this morning. Mark 15, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, would you be with us now as we uh, consider these, these weighty words, these words that um, are, are in many ways horrifying and yet open the door to good news for us. God, would you help us to see ourselves as we truly are this morning? And would you help us to see Jesus as he truly is? that we might know his forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. 
Well, this week I was reminded of a, an article I had read in, a, in the newspaper a couple of years back about a, a guy named Joe Cerna. Joe Cerna was a retired soldier. He was um, Special Forces. I think he was a Green Beret. And um, as, a, as a soldier, he had seen many, uh, not surprisingly, he had seen many horrific things in combat. He had, um, at one time, had to, been, had to be airlifted out um, after a grenade attack. Uh, he had once been trapped overnight in a vehicle that was submerged underwater. Everybody else in the vehicle died. They were trapped, and he was the only one to survive. And having seen um, all kinds of horrific things, um, when he retired from the military, he said that uh, he was able to still kind of take care of himself physically and stay in good shape, but mentally and emotionally, he was kind of a wreck. And uh, he began to look to alcohol to help him cope. And through a series of events, um, after a period of time, he, uh, he was on probation. He was uh, because of, you know, kind of alcohol-related issues. And um, he ended up on probation and kind of through the court system, eventually the point where he was required by the court to appear every 30 days in court um, to update the judge on his sobriety. And so one afternoon, Joe Cerna appears in court and um, confesses to the judge that the last time he was there, he had actually lied about his urine test. And, um, and, uh, and the judge, um, knowing Joe, he had, uh, he had kind of worked through this process with Joe Cerna, um, was convinced that he had an obligation to hold this man accountable. And though he believed that Joe had been a good soldier and was a good man, that he, uh, he had to hold him accountable and sentenced him to 24 hours in jail. So the judge, having sentenced him to 24 hours in jail, then took off his robe and drove Joe Cerna personally to jail. And as Joe went in and kind of was processed in jail, uh, the judge went to the jail administrator and asked him to do something that he had never done before. And so Joe is now in his cell and locked away for 24 hours, and the door of the cell opens. And the judge comes into the cell and is locked in and, uh, and spends 24 hours serving out the sentence there with this man. And uh, later... Joe Cerna said that um, when the door opened to his cell and he looked and he saw the judge standing there, he said, what are you doing here? And the judge said, I'm now in the foxhole with you. And these two men, both of them actually veterans, uh, spent 24 hours together, stayed up all night talking about their service and their family and their lives. And Joe said that that was the moment he knew everything was going to be okay. Now, I love that story. It's a, it's a beautiful story of an innocent judge serving time with a guilty man in order to help him find redemption. It's a beautiful story, and in many ways, I think it's a small thumbnail of the story that we see in this passage this morning of what Jesus is doing as he goes to the cross. On the cross, we see the justice of God 
the absolute justice of God meet the compassion of God as Jesus suffers. On the cross, what we see is Jesus swallows the the cup of the wrath of God down to its end. He brings the wrath of God upon himself. On the cross, what we see is not just an innocent judge who is willing to suffer with someone who is guilty, but actually on the cross what we see is an innocent judge who suffers in place of those who are guilty. On the cross, Jesus suffers not just with us, but for us. It was in in our place that he underwent condemnation so that we might take his place and be reconciled to God. The Bible is telling us that we can be forgiven, we can be reconciled to God and to each other because of what Jesus is doing on the cross. And in fact, the Bible would actually go so far as to say that everything that is wrong with the world is ultimately being healed because of the cross, because of what Jesus, one man, endured and suffered on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. So this morning, I want you to think about your life for a, a minute. Uh, and whether you think about your life in, in terms of like kind of the big picture, you know, birth to death, or maybe when I, when I ask you to think about your life, you think about like a, a, a snapshot, a smaller incident, an isolated incident in your life. Um, I believe that we have a tendency to, to, to kind of think of our lives, the story of our lives, uh, as that, stories. And stories um, play out in a series of acts. Our lives are a drama. Um, think about it like this. Maybe you get a new job, uh, you begin a new relationship, you move into a new city. Um, there's some new beginning, and you approach this new beginning with a sense of idealism and excitement and even innocence. And yet, inevitably, something happens, right? Um, reality sets in, things don't go the way you planned. Uh, the person that you married isn't exactly who you thought that they would be. Or maybe you're not exactly the person you thought you would be. Um, Maybe your uh, boss doesn't follow through on that planned promotion. Um, There is always this moment, this this moment of crisis, this moment that the Bible would call the fall. And then I think comes the most interesting part of the story, where there's this question, can things be made right? Can we be reconciled? Can, uh, Can, will redemption happen? Can we... Can we heal this this wound? And then the final act, the fourth act of 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 the story of any life is sort of uh, the unfolding of of that question of redemption, of uh, of what will happen if if redemption actually begins to characterize more and more of my life. Can I be a person who is actually a, a, not just reconciled, but becomes a reconciler? Or um, what kind of disaster will ensue because I couldn't find redemption? Our lives on the big picture level of a lifetime and, and on the micro level of individual events tend to follow this pattern, and it's because that's the story of the world as it is told to us in the Bible. Um, the way that, that theologians and pastors and kind of people in church circles often talk about it is, is uh, creation. There is this, this innocence. There is this goodness. And then the fall where Adam and Eve in in the book of Genesis uh, disobeyed God and rebelled and sin entered into the world. And with sin came shame. 
and isolation and hiding, and we run from each other, and we run from God, or we defy him in our arrogance. And then the third act is the act of redemption. We see what God does to rescue us. We see what God does to come to us and to find us and to redeem us, to buy us back and to, to buy all of creation back to himself. This morning we're looking at that part of the story, the, the kind of third act, the climax of God's work of redemption. And um, it's the story, as we read, of where on the cross the innocent judge takes on himself the punishment that the guilty deserved in order to reconcile us to God, to buy back all of creation. And today what I want to do is I want to talk, kind of do a deep dive into what, how does that actually work? Um, you know, everybody, if you've been to, uh, you know, kind of probably if you've just grown up in America, I know everybody in the room hasn't grown up in America, but if you've grown up in the kind of the West, um, every, every kid who's been to church a couple of times knows Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins. But how does that actually work? Um, how does the death of one man 2,000 years ago affect my life? And why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to suffer? What kind of God, uh, why, what kind of God would send his son to the cross? Why would a, a, a loving father send his son to die such an agonizing death? This morning what I want to do is make this as clear as I can. This is the climax of the story of what God is doing in our world. The cross is the climax of the story of human history. It's what God does to rescue us. And so in order to be as clear as I can, um, I think it's, it's important to say this, that the, that the cross has both individual and kind of corporate um, implications. There's a sense in which the cross is what God does in order to right every injustice, in order to push back and eventually topple systems of oppression. And on the corporate level, the, the cross has vast implications for us as human beings, as cultures, as nations. But today what I'm going to do is I want to simply focus on the individual implications of the cross. And what that means simply is this. Because of the cross, you can be forgiven. Because of the cross, you can be forgiven. So three kind of phrases that I want, I want to use to unpack that truth. And the first is this. The first thing we have to do in order to see how the cross brings us forgiveness is that um, there, there is always a cost associated with forgiveness. Why did Jesus need to die on the cross in order for God to forgive us? If God is a God of love... Why doesn't he just love us? Like, why does, he, why does he have to send his son to die on the cross? Why doesn't he just love us? You know, it's, a, it's a kind of, a, I think, a common question today. Like, it's a good question. But what it betrays is that we seem to have forgotten that forgiveness always requires um, the payment of a debt. Um, forgiveness always requires the payment of a debt. Think about it like this. If I come over to your house, uh, you invite me over for dinner, let's say. Uh, nobody invites us over for dinner because we have four rambunctious kids, but you know, just say, theoretically, this were to happen. And while I'm at your house, I break something in your living room. Let's say I break this lamp that you love. And uh, it's a $100 lamp. It's, you know, I, I break this lamp, okay? I have now 
caused a debt of $100 to exist, right? And so what's gonna happen? Well, I can either pay you $100, or uh, you could say, I will pay the $100 to replace the lamp, or you could kind of absorb the cost and say, I'm not going to replace that lamp. I forgive this, this debt. I'm gonna absorb it myself, right? That makes sense on kind of a, with a, a physical thing where there's this debt. But the same thing is actually true um, in, in sort of interpersonal relational dynamics. Um, let me give you a couple examples. I, I had to drive to LA and back twice this week, which means I had all kinds of experience uh, with just my angst as a driver. Some of you who have ridden with me know I'm an angry driver. And um, you know that moment when somebody like cuts in front of you and you're like, some of you don't care, but oh, you know. What is happening in that moment? You know, why do I, even though nobody can hear me and I'm surrounded by glass and this person's probably oblivious to the fact that they just wronged me so profoundly, I'm yelling at them. What is wrong with this idiot? My wife's begging me, like, please stop using the word idiot when there are children in the car. I'm trying, okay? But why am I yelling at this person? Because I, rightly or wrongly, <laughs> perceive that I have been wronged by this person, and I am going to exact payment from them by belittling them, if only in the presence of myself. They never even know about it, right? Um, or you can forgive them by kind of absorbing that yourself and not saying anything out loud. But there is a debt when you've been wronged. Okay, that's sort of a, you know, I, probably something that we mostly all do. Um, but it's sort of a trivial example. But think about how this works when somebody has really wronged you in a significant way. Um, somebody's betrayed you. A friend uh, shares a humiliating secret. Uh, your boss lies and takes credit for your work. Your spouse cheats on you. Someone hurts you. Someone uses you. Someone victimizes you. Someone steals from you. There's now a debt that stands between you and that person, right? That's why just the thought of their name causes you to seethe with anger. We were once uh, ripped off by a landlord. And it took, it was like four years before I could think of them without it ruining my day. Why do we feel like that? Well, because there's this debt. And you can either exact payment from them, like maybe for the rest of your life, by every time you think of that person, uh, you know, you kill them in your head, or you badmouth them to their friends, or you just under your breath kind of make sure everybody in your presence knows you hate that person. Right? You, you force them to pay somehow. Or you can absorb that debt yourself. Uh, you can forgive. You can let them off the hook. You can refuse to think the worst of them, to disparage them, to um, you know, prejudge every action. I know that he's going to do the worst thing because of what an awful person he is. Um, you can forgive, but doing so, doing so means that you have to absorb that cost yourself. 
that anger that you feel, that debt that you, you're going to have to absorb that yourself. So there is always a cost associated with forgiveness. Um, Forgiveness always requires the payment of a debt. And the problem, I think, for many of us is that um, we tend, instead of, uh, we we don't ask for forgiveness. We ask people to excuse us. You know, we say things like, hey, I'm sorry I'm late, the traffic, you know, like there's nothing I could do. Or, um, you know, something happened, I couldn't, you know, I know I promised this, but I couldn't follow through. Not my fault, you can't hold it against me. And to make excuses is to say, like, let's be reasonable. You can't hold this against me. There was nothing I could possibly have done. And sometimes that's legitimate, right? But to forgive or to ask for forgiveness is to say, I've done something that's inexcusable. And so I'm asking you to forgive me, not to excuse me, but to absorb the debt, absorb the hurt. All too often we are trying to make excuses for things that can really only be forgiven. Uh, But the debt doesn't go away when we make excuses instead of asking for forgiveness. It's just kind of swept into the closet where it hides away until there's so much stuff hidden in there that it just erupts one day. And it's like, where did that come from? It's because we've been excusing things for years, right? Instead of asking for forgiveness. And then all too often, we simply just kind of cut that person off and we bail and we leave and relationship over. And yet we still never forgive and we just hate them forever. Okay, so I've been talking all this time about kind of our experience of forgiveness and how we forgive or don't forgive one another. But the point of this passage is that um, this is what God does to forgive us. Um, In our rebellion against God, in our sin, we have incurred a debt. And it is that debt that Jesus needs to forgive. Uh, There is a debt that must be paid and yet instead of seeking forgiveness from God, so often we, we, we make excuses um, or we hide or occasionally in our arrogance we kind of turn and we shake our fist at God in defiance. I was uh, reminded of this, this kind of older movie called Space Cowboys. It's sort of a random transition if you've seen that movie. Um, Space Cowboys came out in 2000. It was the story of kind of these old washed up astronauts like uh, who Clint Eastwood and uh, I think Tommy Lee Jones and, and some other kind of older dudes. Um, and they were like the original, like those cowboy astronauts, and they had put up one of the original satellites in orbit, and that satellite was dying, and the technology was so old that nobody at NASA knew how to fix it. And so they bring these old dudes out of retirement and send them back. It's totally, like, obviously far-fetched, right? But they're putting them through all the um, kind of pre-flight stuff, and they're doing the medical inspection, uh, medical exams, and there's this shot where there's these kind of four old dudes, and they're standing there naked um, for their medical exam, and a female nurse walks into the room. And three of them kind of hide, and one of them kind of boldly, shamelessly stands up even taller and kind of struts himself, you know. And I just think that is such a picture of the way that we respond to God. Um, you know, 
It's so easy to think something like, well, you know, if God were to show up, I'd have a thing or two to say to him too. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> um, if God walks into the room, you would know yourself to suddenly be exposed. And most of us hide, but occasionally we kind of defy him and shake our fist at him and arrogantly kind of strut. We are the guilty ones, and our behavior betrays us even if we don't admit it to ourselves. We want to hide, we want to excuse, we want to be angry, we want to shift blame because we're guilty. We have sinned against the God who is good and just, and so there is a debt that stands between God and ourselves, and we cannot deny it. We know it in our bodies even if we won't admit it to ourselves. And so what that means is if we are going to be forgiven, if we're going to experience God's rescue, uh, we need to be forgiven. A debt must be paid. And so the second thing that you have to see in this passage is that Jesus pays the cost. Like that's the good news. Jesus is the one who pays the cost. That's what's happening on the cross. Jesus is paying the debt that we owe. On the cross, God himself absorbs our debt. Instead of exacting payment from us, he absorbs the debt himself. There's a detail in this passage that I never understood before. Um, it said, did you notice that it says that they offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh? And whenever you read the Gospels, any of the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John accounts of the crucifixion, there's always this detail about it. They offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. And I'm like, okay, why? Like, I never understood what was happening. This week, as I was doing some study on this passage, I discovered that in, <clears throat> I don't know if this is, uh, well, the point is that myrrh was considered to be an um, anesthetic, uh, something that reduces the pain. And they offer, um, I, crucifixion is an excruciating way to die. Uh, the Romans had perfected this technique uh, crucifixion basically makes, uh, it's, it's incredibly painful, but it also prolongs the process of dying for hours and hours and hours. So for hours, the person being executed just hovers almost at the point of death and, and yet is not capable of fully dying for a very long period of time. And so offering Jesus myrrh, or wine mixed with myrrh was a was in some ways like this offering of mercy to dull the physical pain of what he was going to experience. And Jesus rejects it because on the cross, he is swallowing the dregs, the, the cup of wrath. Um, why is God angry? Why is God punishing his son? It's because he's angry at sin. Just as you are angry when somebody hurts your friend or your child, God is angry at his children's sin. And Jesus bears that. He swallows it to the end. It's because Jesus loves us that he goes to the cross and pays our punishment himself. It's because he loves us that he goes to the cross, not demanding payment from us, but paying our debt himself. It's us who have turned our backs and we've refused to do what's right. And so there is a debt that we owe God. And yet on the cross, it's Jesus who gets the Father's back. 
God turns his back on Jesus instead of turning his back on us. We've done shameful things. We've done things that we would be horrified if people knew them. You know, if we were exposed for who we really are, we would be embarrassed, we would be ashamed. And yet on the cross, it's Jesus who is stripped naked, who is exposed. Forgiveness always requires the payment of a debt. And on the cross, we see that Jesus paid that price himself so that we can be forgiven, that we can be set free and be reconciled to God. Often as a pastor, I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'll be talking to somebody and somebody will sort of like uh, casually drop something into the conversation like, um, you know, I, you probably wouldn't want me at your church. Or if you really knew what I've done, you, I wouldn't be welcome. Um, and I always say, yes, of course, you're welcome here. And often they'll say something like, well, you know, I haven't told you everything. If you, re- if you really, really, really knew. And, um, you know, when I say you're welcome here, I'm not saying, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't really that bad. What I'm saying is something more like, God loves people who have done awful things. We're not making excuses. We're not, we're not saying, no, no, it's, it's not fine. We've done awful things. And, and my, my hope for us as a church is that we're, we're a people where people who have done awful things sit down next to people who have done awful, who have had awful things done to them. And we, we, we love each other and we forgive each other and we confess to each other. It's not a place to excuse what has been, what we've done. It's a place to experience forgiveness, to welcome one another. We love people who have done horrible things because God loves people who have done horrible things and that's all of us. That's all of us. And instead of exacting payment from us, we're sweeping it under the rug and saying, no, it's fine. He says, it's not fine. What you've done is inexcusable. I cannot excuse it. I must forgive it. And so he pays the debt himself. He's not sweeping anything under the rug. He's not saying, oh, it's not that bad. It it really is that bad. But it's only when we experience that forgiveness that, or that, that, that we know that God is a God who forgives that we can actually be honest about who we are. And stop making excuses or stop running away. Um, and we can actually experience forgiveness. Because of the cross, God no longer holds your sin against you. And so you can be honest about who you really are. Um, Several years ago, I, uh, well, when I was 18, actually, <laughs> several years ago, I had a friend who, um, I was like trying to learn how to play the guitar, and this friend of mine was like, I have this old amp I don't really use, you can buy it from me, and he gave me the amp and I never paid for it for like 20 years. <laughs> and, well, not quite 20 years, but like I had it, and I would carry this amp around, and it was like... Uh, in our last house, it was like in my basement. I never played it because every time I saw it, I felt guilty that I'd like kind of stolen this friend's amp. But uh, whenever I saw him on Facebook, I felt bad. And one day he like sent me this message on Facebook. He goes, do you still have that amp that I sort of lent you that you never bought? I'm like, yes. I feel awful every time I think about it. I get no joy from it. 
He's like, well, you know, my niece is trying to learn how to play guitar. Do you think you could just give her the amp? I'm like, yes, get this thing out of here. And it was like so, I mean, it's kind of a trivial thing, but like I felt such relief to be able to say to my friend, like, yeah, I'm sorry I did accidentally stole your amp, and I'm so glad to be done with it. Like, just like, get it all out there in the open. Because we know that Jesus has paid our debt, the debt has been removed, we are free. We are free. The debt no longer hangs over us. And so the third thing that I want you to, to, to take away, the kind of third phrase to hang your hat on this morning, is this, that if you've been forgiven, then you can be a person who forgives. Uh, there's a, a curious thing in this passage. When Jesus dies, uh, the centurion who was there said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now, a centurion like is not a... Uh, like a security guard who's there just to like keep an eye on things. Or like a, maybe like a Swiss guard who's like in the military but he's never actually done anything. Like a centurion was a man who commanded a hundred soldiers. And um, a centurion had, uh, most of us have probably not seen somebody die. You know, or if we have seen somebody die, you know, is probably in a hospital where they breathe their last. Yeah, that, I mean, that's pain, that's difficult, of course. But uh, like a centurion is somebody who has seen multiple people die horrific deaths. And yet the centurion there witnesses Jesus. It says he breathed his last. And the centurion said, oh, he really was the son of God. Uh, The manner of Jesus' death changes this man. And what I'm here to tell you is that the manner of Jesus' death can change you as well. When you have been forgiven, then you can forgive others as well. And I, I'm not going to prove this this morning, but I would go so far as to say you can really only forgive people truly when you know that you've been forgiven. When you have experienced God's forgiveness, then you can apologize when you're wrong instead of making excuses. And when you've experienced God's forgiveness, when... when um, and forgiveness, I think the simplest way to, what is forgiveness? It's letting, it's being let off the hook. When you realize that God has let you off the hook because Jesus was on the hook, then you can let others off the hook too. You can do the same thing for them. Uh, in the movie To End All Wars, it tells the story of a, uh, a, a group of Scottish soldiers that were captured by the Japanese in World War II. And... Um, they were, these men were uh, forced into, in a POW camp, as prisoners of war, they were forced to build a jungle through the, through the jungle. Or, uh, or, sorry, a jungle through the jungle. A railroad through the jungle. And it was brutal. It was brutal. And they drove them and drove them to build this railroad through this unforgiving terrain faster than it could possibly be done. And they, they were worked to the bone. And in those conditions, these men just uh, kind of uh, descended to all levels of depravity towards one another. And, and they, they were horrible to one another. And um, one afternoon, as they're working, the soldiers come and they, and they, um, they do a tool count because they, they're giving you know, tools to these men who are building this railroad. And they want to make sure they're not stealing them to you know, get out of the camp with. And so they count the tools and they do this count and they discover that a shovel is missing. And the guard demands that the person who stole the shovel comes forward. 
and nobody's coming forward to take responsibility and the guard's getting increasingly agitated and he gets to the point where he is going to you know he's got his gun and he is just going to end it for everybody there and at that moment a man steps forward and the guard takes his sets his gun down and takes a shovel and beats this prisoner to death and then they go they carry his bloody body with them and they go back to work and at the end of the day they do another tool count and all of the shovels were there and it turns out that the the first shovel had just been a miscount it was there all along but the death of this one innocent man sacrificing himself on behalf of his fellow prisoners changed everything in this POW camp. And these soldiers began to act like brothers. And when they were finally freed, this is a true story, by the, um, by the Allied forces at the end of the war, and as the Allied soldiers came in and were going to exact revenge against the Japanese uh, POW camp soldiers, uh, these men who had been prisoners stood in front of them and said, enough is enough. It's time for forgiveness now. Sacrificial love has the power to change you. This is who we are. When we see the innocent one giving himself for us, taking our place, paying our price, it changes us. Simply seeing that story of what somebody else did or hearing it is inspiring. But when you know in your being that this is what Jesus has done on your behalf, it changes you. And it allows you to be a person who is not only forgiven, but can forgive others and can go out into the world and say, I'm not so concerned with my own rights and begin to work as an agent to bring about redemption and reconciliation and good in our world. This is who we are. Christians are people who forgive. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Bible commands Christians to forgive, not because it's easy, not because we turn around and say, like, oh, it's no big deal, like, whatever, we'll just let it go. No, forgiveness is incredibly hard. And so it would be incredibly naive to say, see, get it? Like, you've been forgiven. Now go out and forgive. No, it's incredibly challenging. And the only thing that will make you into a person who can forgive is worship. Like, when you, when you know when you experience the reality that Jesus paid the price that you, God justly would, uh, God could have justly demanded from you, Jesus paid that price. It melts your heart and you can just start to let go of these debts that you're holding on to. Um, let me just give two caveats and then, and then I'll end it. Um, the first is this, um, Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Uh, forgiveness is letting somebody who has wronged you off the hook and no longer holding that against them, no longer kind of prejudging their every action because you think they're a horrible person. Um, but reconciliation is a two-way street. And so reconciliation requires both people, um, I don't know, coming to terms with what has happened. 
And so the, the, the Bible says, insofar as it depends on you, be reconciled to everyone. And it, it may not depend on you. And, and, and in certain cases, I mean, I think especially in cases um, of abuse, and in, in other cases too, it's probably not a good idea to pursue reconciliation. Um, you can forgive even when you can't be reconciled. <clears throat> Somebody once said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. And um, I, I could unpack that all day long, but there, there's a bitterness that grows around our hearts when we refuse to forgive. And so we can forgive those who have wronged us. It doesn't mean it's easy. I'm not saying that at all. It's terribly painful. And yet, refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. <clears throat> Second caveat is this. Um, forgiveness may take time. And it may be a process. And, and forgiving somebody may be like peeling back layers and discovering that there, there, there's a deeper le level of hurt that you've just discovered. And that um, it take, you know, there's another round of forgiveness. Incidentally, it also means if you're on the other side, you may need to apologize more than once or more than twice. Um, forgiveness may take time. You may need help. You may need the help of a friend to help you process and come alongside you and encourage you. Um, you may need help from your pastor to help you forgive. You may need help from a counselor to help you forgive. That's okay. Forgiveness is not something, you know, when you've been terribly hurt, it's not something that can just happen, that we just do easily. It would be easy to finish by saying you've been forgiven, so go out and forgive. And in a sense, that's true, but when um, we've been truly wrong, the only way to be able to truly forgive somebody is, is worship. Is, is through worship to have our hearts moved by what Jesus has done for us. And then to, to, through that experience of worship, to leave and go out and be people who forgive. You can't simply decide to forgive or resolve to forgive, but through worship, the one who has forgiven you uh, when, you, when you worship the one who has forgiven you, you can become one who actually forgives others. Ernest Hemingway has, a, in a short story, he, he tells this story about a, a young man whose relationship with his father um, was just strained and soured, and, and, the, and the young man ran away from his father, and uh, this story takes place in Madrid, and, and the father, um, not being able to find his son, took out a ad in the newspaper, and uh, his son's name was Paco, a very common name in Spain, and he took out an ad that says, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, Dad. And as the story goes, Paco is like, what, Paul? The father shows up to the newspaper office the next morning, and 800 Pacos are there, all wanting to know that their dad has forgiven them. And every week as we worship, we have an opportunity to come and hear that you have a father who says all is forgiven. Somebody else has paid the price. The debt has been absorbed. And you are forgiven. Will you pray with me? Father, would you help us to know that we have experienced 
true forgiveness because Jesus lived and died and was risen again for us. God, would you um, take this truth and drive it into our hearts? Would it so uh, permeate us that our instinct is to be people who forgive? That we wouldn't try to um, pretend uh, that, to, that we're perfect, because we're not. But knowing that we are forgiven, that we would be able to be honest about who we are and experience healing and go out into the world as people who forgive. Only you could do that through us, so we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen.